Good morning, Mark. How are you? Good morning, John. I am doing fine. How about yourself? Doing great. Today on 30-Minute Theology, we are talking about Pentecost. So setting up that scene, uh, we talked about the Ascension in the last episode. Right before Christ ascended, he said in Acts um, chapter 1, he told them to wait in Jerusalem until they received the power from on high. He said, and you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. So then what did he do? Well, they do what Jesus told them to do. The apostles, 11 of them, Judas, uh, he ended that ministry. Uh, 11 of them, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and some other uh, disciples of Christ were all present. And they were praying in anticipation. It's really interesting to imagine like what they expected. I have no idea like what was in their mind, but they believed and they waited. And all of a sudden, this event transpires that is described in the book of Acts as the sound like a rushing wind. Signs appeared over them, uh, resembling tongues of fire on their heads. And they started preaching. And this is to back up. The festival of Pentecost is actually a Jewish holiday. Okay, so Pentecost existed before we Christians had Pentecost. And Pentecost was uh, 50 days after the Passover. Mm-hmm. It's just Penta, just Latin for 50. So um, because this is a major Jewish holiday, there were Jews present in Jerusalem where the apostles were gathered, and they were from all over the Roman Empire, which means that they brought different dialects with them um, from throughout the world. And the reason that people are wondering, are these people drunk? Are these apostles drunk? What is going on? Is because there's this big, powerful experience going on, and... Everyone hears whatever is spoken within their own language. So it really just confounds the senses uh, by making so much sense within their own language. Uh, An interesting point here is this is proof that the early church was not teetotalers. Because they say, are you drunk? And Peter doesn't say we don't drink. He says, guys, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Be real. We're waiting till noon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but no, they're not They're not filled with wine. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. There's so much in this, but I think the first place I want to begin is where we got different languages in the first place. I think lots of cultures have a certain uh, origin story of where our differentiation of tongues came from. If you want to find it in the Bible, our Christian account of it, it's in Genesis chapter 11. It's the Tower of Babel incident. So when God creates Adam and Eve, uh, I would love to talk more about theology of the body and what's involved in this, but he gives them a commandment. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. God, unlike some of our uh, wealthy, quote, philanthropists, does not believe we have too many babies in the world. God likes babies. He tells Adam and Eve to have babies and go throughout the world and civilize. So um, Genesis... One through five is a story of that happening. Uh, Genesis five ends with uh, some of those families doing really horrific things. So bad, 
God floods the earth. It's fascinating. Uh, there's a lot of debate. There has been from the beginning of biblical interpretation. What did humanity do that was so bad that God sent the flood? That'd be a fascinating conversation for another time. Hmm. But uh, God, as we know, uh, calls Noah, and through Noah, his family. He rescues his family, his uh, sons and daughters-in-law, puts them on an ark. Uh, they survive the catastrophic flood. They come out. And what does God tell them to do? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God's original purpose for Adam and Eve is not destroyed by sin. Now, we oftentimes don't fulfill it because of sin, but God holds out his original purpose for us. Well, what do we see just a few chapters later in chapter 11? People say, hey, let's build a great tower and make a great name for ourselves. Their tower uh, in Sunday school, I, I think it was always pictured for me as a sort of like leaning tower of Pisa in the desert. It would have been a Babylonian ziggurat. It looks very much like a Mayan temple that you can still walk around today. Okay, John, you're going to have to explain ziggurat. Ziggurat? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if you look, and maybe the pyramids are this. I don't know. I'm talking about stuff beyond my archaeological depths here. But these uh, temples in the early era, these ziggurats. which Okay, is a, so it's a temple. Yeah, yeah. It's a Babylonian form of a temple. The stairs up. It's got the pyramid shape. If you ever built a pyramid with Legos, it's exactly what a ziggurat looks like. And uh, here's the idea for ziggurat. You know, if you read the uh, Greek myths, Zeus lives on Mount Olympus. So the ancient people don't have an idea of like God is somewhere beyond the physical stratosphere. They believe that the heavenly realm and the earthly realm the, they have these meeting points in between in the sky. So you build high things up, and you're closer to God. Uh, we, that may seem childish to us, but we still feel that way when we climb a mountain. Uh, we still associate, I mean, this is why monasteries oftentimes are built on mountains. We associate mountains with holiness. Well, what do you do when you don't have a mountain? You make one. So they're going to build a mountain, a temple, into the heavens, and they're going to make a great name for themselves. Um, which sounds just kind of silly, but God doesn't think it's funny. And here's the reason why. Uh, this is a pagan understanding of religion that basically the closer we get to God's turf, the more that we have control of what he does. So there's a little bit of uh, almost Lucifer-like uh, pride motivation here, basically to get on equal footing with God and make demands but there's also an even more basic element here going on that god told them to be fruitful multiply to fill the earth and they're like yeah forget that let's combine forces and take heaven by force mm -hmm. so uh this story you know this is in that part of genesis that some biblical interpreters would call myth okay when you have myth you have to ask the question are we dealing with a literal one-time event or are we dealing with basically a pattern of human behavior that gets condensed in one story? Don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about. But the point is, is that whether this story is a one-off <clears throat> event or whether it's the summary of pagan religion from God's perspective, God does not agree with this game. He doesn't like it. And there's a little bit of anthropomorphic humor 
in it that God says, what are they doing? Let me go down so I can see. So it's kind of a joke that obviously God doesn't have to like climb down the stairs from heaven to see what they're doing, but it's treated that way. There's a, a comic element to this. So what does God do? He speaks with himself, thirst, first person plural, just like when he created man in the beginning. But he says, if uh, man continues to behave this way, uh, there's no stopping what mankind will do, and it's not going to end well. So what does God do? God, out of a sort of damage control for our own protection, he uh, splits us up into different language groups. And the uh, this is where we get the word babble from. So it's almost like I come home and all four of my boys have a really good idea in their minds, but like it's really damaging to them. Like they're going to sled down something they shouldn't sled down, climb something mm. they don't shouldn't climb up. What I do, I split them up. And fire is usually involved in these activities. Exactly. Things that explode are always involved. Yeah. yeah. So not only do I take away the the matches and everything, <laughs> but I send them to different places. You are far less danger to yourself separated than united um so basically babel is separating humanity into different families so that we don't unite in really bad ideas okay so then uh, i'll hand it over to you in a second here mark but what we see here in pentecost is the reversal of babel god created the language barrier for our own protection now that Christ has completed the atoning work of redemption from his uh, conception in the womb of Mary through his ascension to the right hand of the Father with uh, his earthly ministry and crucifixion and resurrection in between, the work of renewing humanity has been accomplished. So now the gift of the Holy Spirit can be given so that the gift of uh, reconciling humans to one another can begin because we are ready not to be some team conspired against God, but we are now ready to be united in obedience to God and get to work doing the right kind of project. That's really good, John. Uh, and, and you see that, too, reflected in the Genesis account. So in Genesis 11, you, you point out that the story of Babel is actually found in Genesis 11. Uh, but in Genesis 10, you, you see uh, the sons of Noah being dispersed mm -hmm. according to their families, their languages. And so 11 is kind of a flashback to, mm -hmm. well, why did they, how did they end up there? Yep. Uh, but it's interesting that on, on both sides of the Tower of Babel story, there's a genealogy. And in chapter 10, it ends with the genealogy of Noah's son, Shem. Mm -hmm. Well, Shem in Hebrew means name. Mm -hmm. he, he's the child with the name. And then as you pointed out in chapter 11, what is the issue for these pagans? Well, they want to make a name for themselves. So after God disperses them, the very next thing that you see after the Babel story is, once again, he gives a genealogy of Shem, mm -hmm. so you've, which is going to then culminate in Terah, who gives birth to, or who is the father of Abraham, yep. and what was the promise to Abraham? I will make of you 
I will give a you name. a name, yes. and I will give your people a name. So it, it's a, like you said, it's about this people who are looking for a name, mm-hmm. and it's in the descendants of Abraham that there will be this unifying family, the family that possesses the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, when you say it's the it's the uh, reversal of Babel, like it, it, it's so right on that there is a unified group of people that are they are unified because of the life of the spirit mm-hmm. that when the so I, what i read was the interpretation part uh you explained the 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 event as it happened but peter's uh ex, theological explanation of all that that the servants of god there there's going to be two races of people on mm-hmm. planet earth that with the with the i don't like the word dispensation because it it carries some connotations but um the idea that prior to the coming of jesus the world was a certain way, but one of the unique marks of the New Testament era is the life of the Spirit. The Spirit has been given to the church. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. It's God undoing Babel. It's God reversing Babel. It, rather than scattering people, he's bringing people together in this newly constituted world. They're a, a new group of people that are united by the life of the Spirit that new, you know, the thing we've been talking about for months and months and months now, this new creation, what it means to be a new creation. And so you're the two races, probably a bad word too, alive on planet Earth, you're either alive in Christ, animated by the Spirit of God, or you're dead in Adam. Mm-hmm. And with the world is qualitatively different. The church has been born. God has poured out the Spirit on the church from the first coming to the second coming. It's the spirit that animates us. It, it gives us the power to live, Romans 8. Here it talks about we're going to be able to go do signs and wonders. Uh, we talked earlier. I'm not a cessationist, for those of you who are. Uh, we could probably talk about that. We should talk about what cessationism is <clears throat> it, before it's we the, say why we don't agree with it. Sure, it's, a, it's, a, it's a belief that the gifts, the, 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 stuff, that happened, the stuff that happened in Acts, yeah. m- miracles, uh power stuff that the Holy Spirit does, healings, uh, words of knowledge, the gifts of the Spirit as listed in Rome, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that all of those ceased. So the life that you see the apostles live in Acts chapter, in, in Acts, where they're going around doing miracles and casting out demons and stuff, that has ceased because, uh, it's, it, in my opinion, it comes from a, a, a faulty interpretation of First Corinthians, where it says we have the perfect has come, that's interpreted as the scriptures. So now that we have the scriptures, there's no longer a need for the power, the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be out there doing his thing. Yeah. Um, so just to summarize quickly, um, within the Protestant world, and I think this would apply to the larger Christian world as well, there are two camps of understanding spiritual gifts, the activity of the Holy Spirit in the church. Uh, one is called cessationist and the other is called charismatic. Charism is simply the Greek word for gift, and uh, cessationist comes from um, ceasing. Okay, So here's why cessationism doesn't make sense to me. Cessationism is... It's a premise 
that Jesus would institute something temporarily. The challenge to cessationists is show me anything in the Gospels or the book of Acts that is a temporary institution of Christ. So from a Catholic perspective, it doesn't make sense. I know that for many charismatic Protestants, it doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. uh, because the real issue is why should I believe that Christianity radically changes in terms of what the operation of the Holy Spirit is uh, from the apostolic age to the post-apostolic age. And that's an important issue regarding the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's also really important about church governance. Mm. And um, what's the other thing I was going to say? Oh, sacraments. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, if if miracles occurred in the book of Acts, why would they not occur now? Now, okay. we should keep in mind that when we look at the book of Acts, we're not reading the cumulative data of the experience of every Christian who lived between 30 and 65 AD. So we could easily get the impression that it's just like, boom, like miracles happen in every church every week. And that's not true. And we see a crazy amount from Peter and Paul, and the church believes in them and, and expects them. But we shouldn't overestimate the quantity of miracles occurring in every single congregation. We should just understand, yes, this is real, this really happened. But it's also important to, uh, this is a little bit off topic, but it's important because um, one of the things that I wrestled through as a Southern Baptist is why would Jesus call 12 men and give them his authority of absolving sins, John chapter 20, uh, keys of determining truth to Peter, Matthew 16, uh, authority to determine uh, the church's position on things, Acts chapter 15, authority to excommunicate disobedient pastors, Third John, it's alluded to, Second uh, Timothy. Why would basically Jesus create an apostolic church for it then to die with the apostles? So one of the things I work through is like, why would Jesus institute hierarchy and unity and highly delegated defined authority for it to become congregational as soon as John died? Or why would Jesus grow the church through miracles in the life of St. Paul, but not in the life of St. Patrick? I think the really important thing here is that we don't become... uh, So there's this ancient heresy called Marcionism, where God changes from the Old Testament to New Testament, like his character actually changes, which turns into one of two things. Either it becomes polytheism, we believe in two separate gods, and we begin to basically pin Jesus and the Father against one another, which is heresy, or we create some sort of bipolar God, which is another heresy, and will also create a lot of psychological stress on your spirituality. I think for people who want to say that the Holy Spirit acted a certain way in Acts, but differently today, 
or the Holy Spirit structured the churches certainly in Acts, but differently today. The challenge is, is why are you not a Marcionite? You know, like if you believe in a New Testament God and a post New Testament God, how is that different between believing in an Old Testament God and a New Testament God? We as Christians believe in one triune God who has never changed. Yeah, and, and God not changing, but providing his church with the Spirit. So kind of uh, going off from that, uh, things haven't changed since the New Testament. I think that's a good point that you're making, that the entire, again, I'm going to use that word dispensation, that entire time from the first century, the, the time of the Bible, when the apostles are doing their thing until the second coming, it's not going to change. So to say that some things have ceased be it church governance or the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, it, it's one unified era. And I, well, in one sense, you know, you got the time of the apostles and the time of the church fathers and the Middle Ages and all that. And so mm-hmm. chronologically, we can kind of divide that up. But theologically and what's actually going on in the world, I, it, you make a good point. It doesn't change. So to say that the Holy Spirit still doesn't do his thing like he did in, in Acts, why? Why would God... Why would God do that? Especially uh, with Romans chapter 8, I think one of the great encouragements with the coming of the Spirit is it's the Holy Spirit in us mm-hmm. that animates us, energizes us, so that we can walk godly, we can produce the fruits of the Spirit, and not fall to sinful lifestyles and temptation. That the reason we're equipped to be able to go live the Christian life, to live the Catholic life, is because we are alive with the power of the Spirit. We're a new creation filled with the Spirit, mm-hmm. that we might overcome the sins that we struggle with, that we might become those new creation, better people that we're called to be, that we can grow in virtue, in yeah. godliness, and character. And I think that's a great comfort. That's been a great comfort to me my entire Christian walk, is that it, it, it's not me. God didn't just say, well, congratulations, you believe in me now, I forgive you, now, now go do this thing on your own. Pull yeah. up your spiritual and moral and ethical bootstraps yeah. and try and make this Christian life work. Um, as new creation filled with the Holy Spirit, and for those of you who are out there, read, meditate through Romans chapter 8, the beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. that has been given to us. And you and I were talking before we got on uh, how that's appropriated in the Catholic life through baptism and confirmation. That we That's how we get into this life of the Spirit uh, how we, we make it our own. So yes, God has poured out the Spirit on the church for the entire church age, but how do I appropriate that? How do I make use of it? How do I get that in my life? How do I get that Holy Spirit that's in me to work through me? Yes, it's by faith, but how do I get him to work through me? How do I partner? How do I cooperate with yeah. the Holy Spirit that I might live this life that Paul talks about in Romans 8? And Mark, I just wanted to um, back up the way that you're using the word dispensation, uh, because St. Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John himself, uses that word. Okay, then I'm okay. In uh, Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching, which is mm. a, like a 45-page book. If you want to know how the early church... So if you ever wondered how Paul and Barnabas mm. went throughout the world preaching Jesus before any of the New Testament was written down, this book is actually a demonstration of it because he's demonstrating how the apostles preach from the Jewish scriptures uh, throughout the Old Testament. Okay. And what was the name of that book, John? Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching. Okay. 
And he says there. You can probably two, get that online. Probably. I don't know. Okay. Um, there are two dispensations: announcement and arrival. There's a dispensation of the prophets, and there's a dispensation of the apostles. And by that meaning, there there is a there's a change in quality of things that happen in one dispensation to another. Yeah, and okay, here's yeah. the change. The prophets <clears throat> announced that a gift was coming, and the apostles passed the gift through their hands mm-hmm. and through their preaching. So the prophets predict Jesus. The apostles were sent by Jesus to bring Jesus. The prophets predicted the gift of the Holy Spirit. The apostles mm-hmm. receive and then give the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, that's a great correction. Um, the reason I didn't, I, I kind of trying to steer away from it, is because modern premillennial dispensationalism is what normally people think about when you hear the word dispensation, and, and you try and divide the seven dispensations of dispensationalism. Yeah. It's like, no. Um, so I, I, eras, the era of the Old Testament, the era of pronouncement, the yeah. era of fulfillment. Yeah. And the reason why people like you and me who know the way that the word dispensation used to day shy away from it is we don't want to give the impression that god's right. relationship to humanity method it changes in its right. and somehow it's evolving as we go through time and he's going to do different things in different ways at different yeah. times and yeah. now obviously like we do see development through the scriptures but there's a difference between seeing the the development of a singular plot line and creating like different stories like all together in scripture so the church has always stressed uh continuity more than discontinuity between the old and new testament um that basically the the trajectory that we are following is the promises of god getting closer and closer and closer and closer until jesus is finally conceived in mary's womb and now the gift is incarnate and now he gives that gift through the apostles um, but that's very different than like, well, God dealt with sins this way, and then he dealt with right. sins that way. And, the, cause, and, and the reason we don't see it that way is it's really hard to make that case when you look at the book of Hebrews. I mean, we don't need to go down that yeah. rabbit trail, yeah. um, but just so people understand yeah. the background. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, in Romans 8, like getting back to that— um, up until the time that he comes back. And I love Romans 8 because it kind of ends with this. It ends in the new creation, that there's a time of suffering, there's a time uh, we're destined for glory, and one day the revealing of the sons of God will be complete, and it, it, you know it's all going to be good, and we're going to get the new creation. But uh, if we can get a hold of Romans chapter 8, that the Holy Spirit has been given. He's the one who animates. We are actually alive with the spiritual life of Jesus, the spiritual life of the resurrection through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, God does not ask us to do this on our own, Mm -hmm. live this on our own. He has, in in Romans 6 through 8, actually, in Romans 6, where you get the the new creation language. So we're not just raised from the dead new creation, we're spirit-filled raised from the dead, new creation. And that has always encouraged me in my walk that, yeah, we all stumble. We, we, you know, we, we're, we're bumping along in this road to growth and sanctification and becoming more like Jesus. But um, particularly Romans 8 has been an encouragement that, okay, 
I believe, I've been forgiven, I've, I've been baptized. God doesn't ask me to live this life on my own. He has, mm-hmm. he has really set, the way I like to think about it, he has set us up for success. Mm-hmm. He, has, he has killed the old, he has regenerated, he's raised us new. And if that's not enough, he puts his own fuel and his own life in us that we might be able to go live this life. That's right. Mark, do you think that our audience can handle a brief journey into charismatic gifts? I probably, yeah. All right. This is really fun to me, okay? So um, here's going to be a little journey down American history um, because people use the word charismatic to mean three different things Hmm. because there are actually third waves of charismaticism uh, similar to how there are three waves of feminism. I've heard now a fourth. We're fourth not, we're not going to talk about that yeah please very different let's, let's not do that um so as americans it's this is important because it's important to distinguish things okay so there's the first wave of the charismatic revival in america uh, was the topeka kansas event and the azusa street revival that happened in uh california and this was the birth at the Pentecostal church and a heavy emphasis was placed on the gift of tongues. And we're looking at 1908, six, nine, somewhere in there. That sounds right to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Then there's the second wave, the second wave of the charismatic renewal was a phenomena. I'm using neutral terms, so I'm not, you know, like giving an interpretation of this, but it was the phenomenon of speaking in tongues and other more seemingly supernatural gifts than like if your gift is service or hospitality or something that uh, spread through existing Christian denominations. So it didn't create its own. It now infiltrated other ones. The Episcopalian Church is a major player in this. Uh, Catholic Church as well uh, was it, it was part of the, the the Catholic Church's experience as well, and then there's the third wave of the Charismatic Renewal, where an emphasis is not placed on speaking in tongues in particular, but about the expectation that the Holy Spirit is given to people, which the Church has always believed. <laughs> in any Orthodox church, but an openness to uh, spiritual experiences that we might see as being more charismatic mm. or more mystical. Um, so basically, we uh, the willingness to see the Holy Spirit in the ordinary and openness to the extraordinary. I say this because... Uh, spoiler alert, I do not believe that every Christian receives the gift of tongues and they receive the Holy Spirit. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. But let me segue into positively what I do believe uh, about the reception of the Holy Spirit. So I don't remember if... We're going to talk about baptism more later, but I do sacramental preparation for children, youth, and adults here in the local Catholic church here. And uh, it's very helpful to explain to children that baptism 
is the sacrament of Easter because the historic reality of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection now becomes, through the hands of the church, an experience and a reality for an individual Christian. So Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is applied to us through the gift of baptism. That's why when Paul is reminding us how to behave, he doesn't say, hey, remember that big commitment you made? He says, no, remember that you have been buried and raised with Christ in baptism. Romans chapter 6, Colossians chapter 2. In a similar way, the sacrament of confirmation, which is sometimes called chrismation, is seen as the sacrament of Pentecost. It is not some sort of rite of passage or graduation ceremony. Uh, It can take on certain cultural roles, but when you're looking at what confirmation is theologically, it is the application of Pentecost by the apostolic church to an individual in which Pentecost becomes their own personal lived experience. So if anyone's wanting some like, well, that sounds fancy, but where is that in the Bible? You could see instances where um, Paul in um, 2 Timothy tells Timothy to remember the gift of the Holy Spirit that he received from laying on of hands. You see it in the um, Acts of the Apostles that oftentimes, so uh, like when the deacon Philip goes down and evangelizes, converts and baptizes the Samaritans, what happens? The apostles come down to lay their hands on them, and it's after that that they speak in tongues. So, why on earth am I defending confirmation as a sacrament, but saying that not everyone's going to speak in tongues when they receive the gift of confirmation? Well, here'd be my answer. We are given the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, to be a participant in the life of the triune God, and also to be empowered through the unique calling that God has laid upon us. If anyone has some sort of uh, missionary calling to go preach the gospel in tongues that have never heard it before, I would not be surprised if that somehow occurred through the sacrament of confirmation bestowed upon them. Uh, So I'm not in any way denying that that happens. I'm just saying why we shouldn't see it as why I'm not being inconsistent, because earlier I said the Holy Spirit doesn't change. The book of Acts is still the way we understand the Holy Spirit today. But we do see such, such missionary activity in the church's birth that it makes sense that the particular uh, n- like visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit would come through a gift oriented towards missions. Whereas um, we all receive different, we all receive the same Holy Spirit, um, but the Holy Spirit takes a, a different shape in, in me than he would in you, Mark. So I know you love Thomas Aquinas, and Thomas Aquinas talks about how grace builds on nature. Yep. It doesn't like, uh, nature doesn't, if, if a dog received grace, which dogs don't receive sacramental grace, but it would turn it into a holier dog, not into a cat. In the same way, whatever I receive of the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of confirmation and the sacrament of baptism, it does not transform me into my parish priest. 
it elevates me to a new level of holiness and um, ability to fulfill my purpose in life as John. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that, that idea of, um, because Aquinas talks about habitual grace and operative grace. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then you've got uh, the gifts of the Spirit. So the, the grace of the Holy Spirit that transforms me. And then the gifts, like you were talking about, um, how does he use us in ministry? And so when Paul, and I, I think you're exactly right, when Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit that are given as the Holy Spirit apportioned. Same Holy Spirit, like you said, yep. but he's going to give some one gift, and he's going to give somebody else another gift, and somebody's going to have the gift of healing. They'll be used to yeah, heal people. Yeah. Um, other people will be able to prophesy, et cetera. Uh, and Paul makes this, this statement. He, he asks a series of rhetorical questions at the end of chapter 12 where he, he outlines the spiritual gifts. And he says, uh, are, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work mighty deeds, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? And then he's going to say, that leads into chapter 13 of, but everybody should be striving for love. So the, the rhetorical question, the, the implied answer is, well, no, not all our apostles, not all our prophets, not all our teachers, not all speak in tongues. So, yeah. uh, <clears throat> so I, 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 good explanation. Everybody has the Holy Spirit for growth and grace and sanctification to make me into the image of Christ, and the Holy Spirit's going to empower me, Romans 8, and that transformational life. But... He's given other people, he's given various people various gifts. And Paul even says, it's at his discretion that you might be somebody who uh, has the gift of prophecy and you're really good at discerning those things. Other people, and if I don't have it, well, that's okay. Because Paul, in chapter 12, that the whole point is the unity of the body, that God has given you as a gift to the body to do your thing. Yeah. The body will be built up through your ministry. My ministry is going to be a little bit different. And as we all come together, Use the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us in X in First uh, Corinthians chapter fourteen, and this is why I, uh, another reason why I don't think cessationism is probably a good idea or true, mm-hmm. because Paul says in First Corinthians chapter fourteen the gifts are for building up the body. Mm-hmm. So you're implying then if if the gifts of the Holy Spirit have has ceased in this New Testament way, then God is no longer interested in building up the body. Yeah. That just doesn't seem right. You know that wonderful um, theological source, Babylon B? Oh, love it. <laughs> I remember once they had a... Uh, Babylon B is satire, by the way, so uh, don't fact-check Babylon B. It's supposed to be funny. That's um, that's exceedingly difficult for some people. <laughs> but they had a hilarious article titled, Local Pentecostal Pasture Argues That the Gift of Discernment Has Ceased. <laughs> it was so funny. Uh, and and I think it was actually making a really good point that in the same way, we should be open to things beyond our rationality by the Holy yeah. Spirit. We should also be open to the Holy Spirit asking of us some rationality to discern um, constructive behavior because it's all for the building of the church. Yeah. Um, and that applies for any gift. Because, you know, we can all use our gifts in a way that's not an actual gift. So I, I probably have some sort of teaching gift. You know, I'm hired to be a teacher in the church. If, uh, if I teach in such a way uh, 
as to, I don't know, just stoke my ego, I'm not giving a gift, you know? So we can, whatever our gift is, we can obviously uh, misuse it, which is what yeah. Paul makes such points about in uh, yeah. First Corinthians, that yeah. the point of everything is love. Right. He's not downplaying the gifts at all. He's just saying right. that uh, a gift is only a gift when it's given in love. A gift not given in love is some sort of trade. Maybe it's a trade-off, but it's not the giving of a gift. And it, uh, it's funny how Paul kind of, he'll often make these sandwiches, you know, and you got Romans 6, new creation, and Romans 8, the gift of the, uh, the, the empowering of the Spirit. In the middle, you got Romans 7 that, well, you know, there's some struggle there. Yeah. And he does the same thing in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, here's the listing of the gifts. The Holy Spirit's given to each one as he uh, wants. Chapter 14, the gift of prophecy in tongues. But then right in the middle, like you said, he says, but you know, if, if anything, pursue love. Yeah. The gifts of the spirits are great. The gift of the Spirit is great. Um it's there for the building up of the church, and we all get to use our gifts, and, and we're all, we all have a place in the body yep. to be able to be used to minister to each other and build it up. Um, but don't forget, it, 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 in the middle, that nice, white, creamy Oreo cookie, um, if you do it without love, which is what you said, if you do it without love, you're just a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. You're just a blast of hot air. That's right. Well, sp speaking of hot air, we've gone uh, 13 minutes over 30. Well, you'll edit. But it's, it's pit. No, I don't edit any of this. That's work. Well, this is Pentecost. <laughs> so uh, maybe it's appropriate that we went long. Is there anything that you would like to add, Mark? Uh, no, I just encourage people, if you haven't read Romans 8 in a while, um, do it, it it's, and, and meditate through it. And for those who, and, and this is, I say this out of uh, my own experience, the times when I struggle and I feel alone and I feel like I can't get over some of these issues and I want to grow and I want to do better. And, and the, the sacrament of uh, confession and penance always helps, but the actual walking day to day, um, it's, it's that Aquinas talks about a cooperate, all the church fathers, cooperating with the Holy Spirit as he's trying to move me. He's, he's trying to help me grow. And Romans 8 has always been an encouragement. I have the Holy Spirit. He's there. He's the animating principle in me. And if I would just go along with what he's trying to do in my life, I'll see those victories. But I'm not alone, and you're not alone, and anybody listening out there, you're not alone in this very difficult life. can be very difficult that God has set us up for success. We are new creation. We're raised from the dead. And on top of that, we're spirit-filled new creation, resurrected beings. Mm -hmm. I think the one word that's central to me throughout this is, uh, this is a big John Paul II word. Pope John Paul II uses a lot in Theology of the Body. But receptivity. So if the Holy Spirit is the gift of God, if the third person of the Godhead is identified as gift, he, uh, God wants to pour out the gift of himself upon us. Um, God is giving, which means that we should be receiving. And I think one of the biggest lessons of the Christian life is simply learning how to be receptive and trust that what God wants to give us is good. 
um, we only have what we have to give we only have if we first receive it so we have we each one of us by grace has something to give to others to change the world that only we can give but only if first we're willing to receive it and we have to see god as good we have yeah. to see him as a giver of gifts yeah. and good gifts yeah and good gifts well mark this has been fun thank you very much john this has been fun thank you